In February this year, Russia was warned of the devastating consequences it would face if it invaded Ukraine. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. We have purposefully designed these sanctions to maximize the long-term impact on Russia and to minimize the impact on the United States and our allies. This is uh, US President Joe Biden earlier this year, who, along with the EU and allies, including us, has since imposed a raft of further sanctions to restrict top Russian officials to, to kneecap their economy, fundamentally to undermine its ability to fund the invasion of Ukraine. Eight months on, it's worth examining to what extent the sanctions are working in this overall strategy. There are, of course, Russian countermeasures as well, which have cost the West dearly. Bruce Gentleson is author of a new book called Sanctions, What Everyone Needs to Know. He's one of America's leading scholars on the subject, and he worked on sanction policy in the Clinton and Obama administrations, and he joined me earlier. Thanks. Thanks for having me. What's your assessment of the effectiveness of sanctions that have been put in place so far against Russia? Yeah, you know, the, the intro you had was the threat before Russia invaded, trying to deter the invasion. That obviously didn't work. Uh, it may have been impossible to deter Putin from invading, given this vision he's had of greater Russia. But now, eight months in, we're seeing, you know, the sanctions have some impact. And there are two things that make these sanctions a bit more effective than sanctions often are. One is the amount of international support they're getting. Not every country, India's been buying Russian oil, China's been buying a certain amount. Uh, but, you know, many of America's allies, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Japan, uh, South Korea, all of Europe have been supporting them, as well as lots of companies. You know, companies often try to go around sanctions, but many companies have been actually going further than they're required to do because uh, I think they don't want to be associated with this. Second thing is they've been really not just squeezing the Russian economy. And it's not that a country ever says, uncle, that doesn't happen with sanctions. But they've been hitting their military industrial complex. And combined with the, you know, amazing, really courageous and skilled resistance of the Ukrainian military, with support from the West, from the U.S., NATO and others, um, they've been, Russians have been losing an enormous amount of heavy equipment. Just as one example, they've lost about 3,000 pieces of heavy equipment. And because of the semiconductor sanctions, they're having to try to take semiconductors out of dishwashers and refrigerators to put that equipment back in place. So, you know, they haven't achieved their objective yet, the sanctions, which is to push Putin to end the war uh, on favorable terms to Ukraine and the rest of the world. But they're having significant impact, which, which is more than we often see. Yes, and we'll come to that, why, why that is so. Of course, thus far and this is such a work in progress, there are no signs of Russia ending the war. So I suppose it demonstrates that even though these have been quite effective in terms of curbing behaviour or changing internal behaviour, they're not achieving what they were designed to achieve yet, are they? That's right. And in fact, what happens a lot, I talk in my book about lots of other cases, you know, is you have a lot of economic impact, but you don't achieve your policy goal. Look at Cuba. You know, over 60 years of America's sanctions heavy effect on the economy, but the regime's still standing. Look at North Korea, 30 plus years of UN and other sanctions, and they build more, not fewer nuclear weapons. So the economic impact doesn't always bring you policy success. You've got to combine it with some diplomacy, uh, sometimes with military force, as in the Russia-Ukraine case. Uh, and sometimes we just think, oh, we have a lot more economic power than the other guy. We're, we're, we're going to make him say uncle. And that's just not the way sanctions work. 
Is it because partly, just to keep with this one, because it is an interesting example, that other countries who haven't sanctioned Russia, like China and India, are getting around this and, and this, this is part of the um, policy dilemma? Yeah, that's right. A country hit with sanctions always tries to find alternative trade partners. Uh, you in Australia, with the sanctions that China imposed, you know, have found alternative partners for your corn and your barley and other exports. I saw uh, statistics from the government that of the $4 billion worth of exports sanctioned by China, about 3.3 has been replaced, right? And so Russia's been doing the same. India went from 2% of its imported oil from Russia to 20% partly because they're getting at a discount and they refine it and then they sell it on global markets. But that may be changing. You know, we've had the prime minister of India, and they have a very close relationship with Russia, including militarily, uh, openly criticize Putin twice mm. in the last couple of weeks. And Xi Jinping once criticized Putin at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit privately and then publicly, despite, you know, at the Olympics saying this was a partnership with no limits, the Chinese are kind of looking for some limits. They're not really feeling like what Russia's doing serves their purposes. So, you know, the role they're playing is not totally coming to the rescue of Putin. And we've actually had the Indian External Affairs Minister, a very elegant man, uh, here for the second time this year, which is very interesting in terms of Australia-India relationships. So, I mean, I think there's a lot happening behind the scenes. So, I suppose I must say, maybe the sanctions have, have been a bedrock of that. Do you think they have? Do they change the conversation? They do. But, you know, if the military resistance had not been as, you know, relatively successful as it's been, we wouldn't be talking about sanctions. And we'd be saying Russia was paying a penalty, but the objective that Putin started with would have been achieved. It's this combination of effective military resistance and a bit of an economic squeeze. And Russia, you know, had ways of countering the sanctions, not just with alternative trade partners, uh, but they used capital controls and interest rates, and they gave retirees higher pensions. Um, but that's beginning to strain their resources. So sanctions are a part of the mix, but uh, they're not the whole strategy by by any means. Yes, you say uh, they're a crucial part of the toolkit of coercive diplomacy uh, when nations are negotiating. They allow a party to effectively say, if you do X, I'll do Y. Now, is there a discussion, to your knowledge, along those lines with the Russians right now? You know, it's interesting. I actually, about a week or two ago, was was briefing the Biden administration on this work. And, you know, I have friends and colleagues that I've worked with before. Uh, and I said to them, I hope there's some quiet diplomacy going on. But if there is, I shouldn't know about it. Nobody else should know about it, right? Uh, because that's the essence of it. So it's really hard to say. Uh, I kind of find it hard to believe that something's not going on, maybe not even with Americans, but you know, with others that might have contacts in Russia that might be a more acceptable interlocutor. Because ultimately the goal here is to increase your leverage and bring them to the table to negotiate. And we saw this with Iran. You know, Obama's sanctions against Iran were combined with diplomacy. And, you know, we wanted a nuclear nonproliferation agreement, and we had lots of support, including from Russia and China, and we hit them with sanctions. Trump comes in and he ratchets up the sanctions, has even more economic impact, but he's after regime change, not diplomacy. Uh, and he has economic impact, but, but no policy success.
Mm. Just just as a, a little coda to that, this uh, Indian External Affairs Minister did say to this ga- group that I was a part of that there was a lot of work going on among the world's foreign ministers to try to actually bring diplomacy into the Ukraine, um, the Ukraine issue. So I assume there is a lot happening. Uh, we just don't know about it and probably shouldn't. Look, historically, where have sanctions, in your view, been most effectively applied? So the, the, one of the main cases was South Africa in the 1980s, the anti-apartheid sanctions. It took a long time. The first UN sanctions were the early 60s. They were, they were military, you know, on arms, arms embargoes. Uh, and the regime survived for a long time. And finally, the United States joined them very late. You know, we still had this image of Mandela and the African National Cong- Congress as communist, you know. And the U.S. finally joined it in 1986, Interestingly enough, the sanctions were passed by Congress, uh, by a Republican Senate that overrode the veto of Ronald Reagan, a Republican president, okay. something you know, that seems mm. you know, very, very unusual these days. But at the same time, uh, two other things happened. One is banks began to see this as a risk and they didn't roll over loans, not for political reasons, but for their own finance. And the other is you had a willingness to negotiate. The diplomacy there was more internal. You know, declare the South African prime minister and Nelson Mandela, you know, extraordinary leader who looked for reconciliation, not retribution. And, and you know, if, if you had made a bet that South Africa would transition to peacefully to democracy, it would have been a very, you could have, could have gotten very good odds. It hasn't solved all the problems. But that was a case where sanctions were, were a big, big part of it. It just took a long time. Mm. You wrestle in your book about applying sanctions against country where there have been countries where there have been human rights abuses, and you ask how the US could not impose sanctions on the Myanmar military for its brutal coup and ongoing appalling behaviour. And yet there is a big question, and we covered this on the program a couple of weeks ago, as to whether the sanctions do anything uh, or, or may they even harm the very population you're trying to help. Absolutely. I actually meant to pose that question is, you know, on the one hand, on the other, because when you're trying to promote human rights, you know, your principles, your intentions may be good. But like you're saying, your consequences can hit the people that you're trying to help. You know, there's both backfiring and misfiring. Backfiring is where the regime says, I'll show you, I'm going to crack down even more. And there was a study by some colleagues of, uh, I think, 95 different sets of sanctions between 1981 and 2000 against different countries uh, for human rights. And more often than not, they backfired. And then there's the misfiring where you hit the people. And that that has happened to Myanmar, you know, that has had uh, the military has insulated itself. And also what sometimes happened is uh, efforts by NGOs to provide humanitarian aid, whether it's in Myanmar or Syria, run into the problem where shippers and insurers do what they call de-risking. Like they want to provide the aid to the NGOs to reach the people, but they're concerned that even inadvertently they might uh, violate a sanction and be liable. And so there's been a lot of this problem of de-risking, especially during the Trump years. The Biden administration is trying to get a better balance. But fundamentally, we, you know, we like to say that we're doing the right thing, but we really need to think about the consequences of what we do. Otherwise, we're really contradicting the values we claim. Well, you mean there's almost an overcompliance goes on, you mean? Yeah, that's, that's what happens. Mm. And, it's, you know, in some respects, it's, you know, I really want to help that NGO get food to the, to the people in north, northern Syria. Uh, but somebody might, you know, unbeknownst to me, some of that might reach the Assad government, even though nobody intended it. And then I'm going to get 
you know, fines and, and lawsuits against me from governments and stuff. So I'm better off not doing it. And then the NGO can't do what it sets out to do, which is help the people. What about whether to lift sanctions already in place against an, a regime like the Taliban? I mean, by God, if that, is that a... Is that a wicked problem where people have been going hungry and yet, you know, there's such such a sense that those people who've come in have got to be indicated to that they're now in charge of a country? Yeah, that's the dilemma. You don't want to send them the message that they can get away with it. But uh, before this past winter of 2021, 2022, uh, David Miliband, who's the former British foreign minister and now the head of the International Rescue Committee, one of the largest NGOs, warned that nine million people in Afghanistan might die from starvation, which would be more than far more than than died in the in 20 years of war. Uh, and so in the policy jargon, they try to do what they call carve outs to avoid that and get the aid to the people. But it rarely is enough. And, you know, in many respects, to me, uh, in that kind of situation, you know, you really need to be able to say, I'm not trying to help the government, but I'm willing to help them a little bit, even though they violate many things that I believe in, if I really can help the Afghan people. And I actually think people would give you credit. I mean, people would, some people would attack you, but I think you'd get real credit, you know, for doing that in lots of respects. You recently addressed um, what sounds like a very interesting congressional hearing into the humanitarian impacts of sanctions. And the chair of that, James McGovern, a Democrat from Massachusetts, he actually expressed a concern that maybe sanctions could fuel anti-American sentiment. Does that bother you? Or it, might I add, the targeting of key individuals, say, some of the sort of plutocrats in, in um, Putin's regime, does that counter that? It bothers me in situations like you and I were just talking about where, you know, people in Syria or Myanmar or elsewhere face, you know, hardship and humanitarian crisis. Those directed at the so-called oligarchs, uh, there's something called the the SDN list, Special Designated Nationals. And the EU has a similar one. The UK does. I think the Australian government might, where you target individuals and organizations, you know, terrorists, criminals, oligarchs around Putin. Um, frankly, if they're going to be anti-American, um, that doesn't bother me that much. But I think sometimes, you know, that's done and, and they don't have the access to try to change policy. So you seize a super yacht and it makes a good headline, but it doesn't really get you closer to your policy objective. That's a, that's more my concern. Mm. In Out of this, there was very interesting coverage of it um, with people from, say, the International Crisis Group suggesting that there be a built-in review process that would force Congress to look at sanctions regimes after a given period, or at least sort of evaluate their effectiveness and impact on civilians. Do you think that is a good idea? I do. And I think, you know, in back in spring 2021, before the Russia-Ukraine, the Biden administration initiated a full-scale review of how sanctions are used, led by the two key departments, Treasury and State. And I participated in that somewhat. I had some input. And one of my pieces of advice was you need to do a net assessment on the front end. A lot of times you don't need to see the consequences, but you really need to, to take stock of both what you might put in the positive column, which is costs imposed on bad guys and achieving your policy objectives. But then you'll need to look at this possibility of backfiring and misfiring and even what I call crossfiring, where you get into dis disputes with your allies or frontline states like Colombia with the Venezuela sanctions or Jordan back with the Iraq sanctions in the 1990s, 
you know, they're friends of yours and they pay a price. And, you know, if you can't know everything, but if you do the net assessment on the front end, it's even more effective than just having it every six months or or year into the sanction. So I think both are important. Mm. Look, finally, I do note that back in the early 1980s, you wrote your doctoral thesis on Cold War sanctions against Soviet energy pipelines to Western Europe. Uh, It's amazing, isn't it? Four decades on, there are so many parallels. I know. It's, there were two pipelines I wrote about then. One was called the Friendship Oil Pipeline in the early 60s, which involved Germany and Italy, and the other, the Siberian Natural Gas Pipeline, which was interesting, by the way, because Margaret Thatcher, who agreed with Ronald Reagan on just about everything, opposed Reagan pushing Britain. They weren't getting the gas, but they were supplying the pipe. So with Nord Stream 2, I kind of felt like I had my own personal trilogy here, you know? <laughs> yes, the more things change, etc., etc. Uh, look, thank you very much indeed, Bruce. It's a very user-friendly book, lots of case studies and examples. Thank you for your time. Well, I really appreciate it and all the best to you. Bruce Gentleson, he's the author of a new book, Sanctions, What Everyone Needs to Know. It's an Oxford University Press publication. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.